Zechariah 9, reading from verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south, and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be as full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. Good morning. <laughs> it's lovely to be worshiping with you all this morning. I have the very great privilege of working for Tear Fund and for sharing in churches around Scotland stories about Tear Fund's work and sharing our vision about following Jesus where the need is greatest. I'm used to speaking and preaching quite regularly in churches, but never in Advent. This is the first time, actually, I think, that I've actually been invited to come and take part in a church's uh, Advent services. And this presented its own challenges. Because you see, normally I decide what passage I preach on. I, I'm, at the moment, I'm working my way through the Good Samaritan, and previously I've preached on the feeding of the 5,000, and the widow in Elisha, and the jar of olive oil, all passages that I can link in very easily to Tear Fund's work. So it was a challenge to be presented with a passage and told it'll be Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 16. I feel that I should confess at this point that I am not trained as a preacher in the expository style or the exegetical style. So if you've come along expecting that, don't be too disappointed. Because rather, I see myself as a storyteller. As I share about Tearfund's work, I tell stories. In the course of seeking to tell a story this morning, though, I immersed myself in research on Zechariah, not a book I was terribly familiar with. And I learned all kinds of fascinating things about the book of Zechariah and about the prophet priest that was Zechariah, that it's a post-exilic book, that Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai, that the chief purpose of the book was that it was written to rebuke the people of Judah and encourage them to rebuild the temple. It is a book that is full of apocalyptic, eschatological, and messianic motifs. I learned also that chapters 9 to 14, the authorship is somewhat disputed, although even that dispute is disputed by some. 
Those chapters, 9 to 14, are the oracles of judgment, salvation, and deliverance. But probably one of the most famous verses in Zechariah is verse 9 of chapter 9. The verse that begins, see your king comes to you riding on a donkey. There's many messianic references, as I say, in Zechariah, and that's probably the one of the most famous. Because, of course, it's the one that stands out because we saw its fulfillment in Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So much so that John and Matthew both quote that verse directly, and it's indirectly referenced in the other Gospels. To those listening, it must have been good news to hear these prophecies, to hear these words. Although you can imagine too, there was a certain element of trying to puzzle it out. A king is coming, but a new type of king. This is going to be a king who will be riding on a donkey. He's going to be bringing in a very different kind of kingdom. And the donkey itself symbolizes that. For what king rides a donkey? A king surely rides the finest horse in the kingdom. You're looking for some tremendously beautiful, amazing-looking stallion, surely, for a king. Not a donkey. Because a donkey is a symbol of humility. It's a symbol of peace. It's quite a lowly animal. Somebody actually told me earlier um, that in, in Arabic, to call someone a donkey is a huge insult. It's not a flattering thing. It's not an animal that is regarded highly. But both David and Solomon at various times rode a donkey. So this is a sign that this king, this new king that's coming, is linked in to the Davidic line. And it's a sign, as I say, that this is a different type of king. And the prophecy goes on to talk about what this new kingdom will be like. It'll be a kingdom in which the bow will be broken. There will be peace to the nations. And peace that's not just an absence of conflict. The peace that's referred to here is a proactive thing. It is shalom. That peace that we know is actually best summed up by the idea of wholeness, well-being, a life-enhancing peace. What life should really be like, as God intended it to be. So this is a wonderful prophecy. These are wonderful verses to read, and they must have been wonderful promises to hear. Who would not want this kingdom to come? And we know it found its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus arrived exactly as promised. Everything that the Old Testament said about Jesus came to pass. And when Jesus arrived in Mark chapter 1, he began his ministry by preaching, the kingdom of God is near. And he preached this kingdom. We read in the Gospels of a kingdom that's completely different from the kind of one that the world would value. It's a kingdom where the first shall be last and the last shall be worst. It's not about wealth and power and might. It's a kingdom where the poorest, the weakest, and the most vulnerable are not only looked out for and looked after, but are lifted high. It's an upside-down kingdom at odds with the world's values. Now, as I got immersed in my research in Zechariah, two things happened at this point. I was getting bogged down in commentaries. And I found myself texting a minister friend going, I don't understand this. It, it was written to the people of Judah, but there's also a thing about Israel. Was the Messiah promised to Judah and Israel? And remind me again, what's the difference between Judah and Israel? And, and so it went on, so it went on. He said, okay, stop, breathe. He said, the thing to think about is, he said, what is your main point? And I said, my main point? He said, yes, what one point do you want to draw out when you preach on Sunday? I said, Norman, 
I've got 10 pages of main points right now. You'd be delighted to know he's a very good friend and he talked me out of those 10 pages. But the second thing that happened this week was on Wednesday. I came into the tear fund office, sat down, and I burst into tears. Now, my colleagues are very pastoral, so somebody appeared at my side, tissues were proffered, a cup of tea was brought, and they asked me, what's wrong? And I confessed that I was having a truly rubbish week. Actually, if I'm confessing further, seeing as we're in a confessional state of mind, I didn't use the word rubbish. I used a stronger word. But there's no reason for Tear Fund to get even more notoriety for the type of speakers it sends out. It was a really, really, really horrible week. And I felt utterly weighed down. I felt really quite overwhelmed that day. Because it seems to me that in the past week, in the past couple of weeks, I've heard nothing but bad news from some of my friends. I have one friend whose dad has just died. I have two friends at the moment whose fathers are in intensive care, one of whom it's been a little bit touch and go this week, but they're now expected to recover, and one where the recovery is uncertain and unknown. I heard news this week of a friend who lives down south who tried to commit suicide. This news was broken to me by another friend who lives down there and who's trying to cope with the aftermath. One friend confided in me they'd had a devastating miscarriage. Another friend confessed that she's been living with anxiety and depression for a long time now, and I'd never guessed. And another friend lost a dearly loved grandparent. And that's just the personal stuff. That's just the thing that's going on, the things that are going on in the lives of people I love and know. Then we come to what's going on in the world around me. I had a colleague from the Rwandan office in, in visiting us this week, and during our staff devotions, he shared with us stories of what's happening in Rwanda. Now, there are stories, amazing stories of hope and reconciliation that have come about in Rwanda since the dreadful genocide of 20 years ago. But even to relive and rehear the stories of what happened was heartbreaking. And he told us tales too of the devastating situation that Burundi fe fe faces at the moment where thousands of Burundian refugees are fleeing to Rwanda. We don't hear about Burundi in the news, but it's a powder keg waiting to go off. I also read stories of the increasing hunger and drought situation in Ethiopia with up to 15 million people facing famine. We have the ongoing stories and pictures and images from Syria, pictures of children buried in the rubble of Aleppo. The news broke this week of yet another horrific child abuse scandal in our own country. Hundreds of children, innocents stolen. And of course, we've got the impact of what's happened in the political scene, both in the UK and in the USA over the last few months. And the almost toxic atmosphere there seems to be on social media as people try and debate and discuss and come to grips what's happened. So I sat there in my chair crying. And I said to my colleagues, I can't do it. I'm supposed to be preaching about the kingdom of God. I'm supposed, to be, I'm supposed to be speaking about Advent. I'm supposed to be bringing some uplifting message about looking forward to the coming of the king and isn't this great? And I just can't do it. I said, there's too much going on. There's too much pain. And my colleagues are wise. 
They let me cry. And then they said, yeah, there is a lot of pain. Isn't that the point? Because you see, the kingdom of God did arrive with Jesus. The kingdom of God is now. It was long promised, long anticipated. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, Zechariah and other prophets like him were saying, there is someone coming. And it arrived with Jesus. He brought the kingdom. The blind saw, the lame walked. This king who came riding on a donkey had salvation and he gave it to us. But as it is now, it is also not yet. We know that the final fulfillment of the kingdom is still to come. For now, we are living in the gap. And living in that gap, it's a hideously hard place to be. I'm certainly struggling with it at the moment. But as I reflected on the other verses in Zechariah, two things stood out to me. The verse that declares that you are to return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. I thought, prisoners of hope? Isn't that a wonderful phrase? And again, it kind of turns something that we know about on its head because prisoners are in a desperate situation. Prisoners have no hope. To be imprisoned is a bad thing. But we are prisoners of hope. The fortress is our God. And as these prisoners of hope, a promise is given to us that twice as much will be restored to us. There will be complete restoration coming. A promise has been made to us. And God always keeps his promises. And at hard times when we doubt that, let's look at books like Zechariah. Let's look at prophecies like Zechariah. What God promised happened. It came true. God keeps his promises. <coughs> and the second thing that struck me from the passage <clears throat> on reading and reflecting, and actually I think, <clears throat> I can't remember exactly how it was put in, in the NIV translation we had there. <clears throat> it said, I think it said something about people are, are my warriors. I Sometimes we, we use the message translation in our staff devotions. One of our colleagues has, has recently reminded us that the language in the message can sometimes be really unhelpful as we, un helpful as we unpack uh, God's word to us. So I was reading through the message, and this verse just said, from now on, people are my swords. I thought, isn't that great? From now on, people are my swords. I love that image, because a sword is a weapon with a point of impact. Particularly back in those days, old-fashioned sword, it was a piercing implement. And we are God's swords. Not instruments or weapons that will kill or injure or maim, but using us, he's going to help pierce the darkness. We are kingdom weapons. But weapons in a kingdom that is about shalom, so just as we don't injure or harm or maim, instead, what we wield as a sword of God is we wield grace, mercy, truth, and love. Because, of course, we're not passive members of this royal household. 
We're members of this kingdom, but we're not pampered courtiers waited on hand and foot. We are the king's servants. We have a job to do. We have a role to fulfill. And in piercing the darkness of the world, it's our task, it's our job, it's our responsibility to step up, to step out, to proclaim, to declare, to promise, and to promote the good news that this world will know healing. It will know restoration. It will be redeemed. It will be restored. Every dark force, every dark thing that is playing many hell with people's lives right now is on notice that our king is returning. Doesn't this world around us make our hearts cry that out? Jesus, come quickly. But until then, we live in the gap, prisoners of hope. Christians in Zimbabwe live in that gap. They live in hope of a world where poverty will be vanquished. And in the meantime, they proclaim Jesus' good news for the poor. It's very apt that they do that because actually most of Zimbabwe lives in poverty. In a population of 12 million people, it's estimated that 87% of the population live on less than a dollar a day. Water is scarce. Drought is sweeping the land. There was an article actually on the BBC News website this week which told, shared stories of how people were struggling without water. Most Zimbabwean citizens have not had water piped through, through taps for years. So dry. This is actually a riverbed, this photograph. A river where there is now no more water. Added to this, the country is in a time of unprecedented economic instability. When I say there's a lack of cash, we mean there's a lack of actual physical notes. And the country is still suffering the devastating effects of a widespread HIV and AIDS infection, which amongst the age 15 to 49 age range affects about 15% of the population. And of course, when you have such big statistics, we also have to realize that that means the weakest, most vulnerable members of society, the children, are the ones who are hardest hit. And Zimbabwe is estimated to have some 890,000 orphans. But they are not without hope. In 1993, a remarkable English lady by the name of Jean Webster had a vision to care for orphans and other vulnerable children. She set up an organization called Zoe, who became a tear fund partner in the year 2000. Now, I had always known of Zoe as a tear fund partner and thought that the Zoe, the Z-O-E, stood for Zimbabwe Orphans with Extended Hands, which it does. But it turned out she also called it Zoe for another reason. She called it Zoe because of the word Zoe's meaning in the Greek. Zoe means abundant life. And she felt that that was what God wanted for the orphans of Zimbabwe. Searching her Bible, Jean came across over 40 references to God's heart for orphans and our instructions as people of God, kingdom people, to care for the orphan. And so Zoe was born. 
It's an interdenominational agency. It works uh, with lots of different churches across Zimbabwe. And its mission is to awaken the church to the fact that they can be the answer to Zimbabwe's orphan problem. It's not a project, though, that is about setting up orphanages. It's not a project that's about creating dependency by simply handing out material resources. Rather, it is about equipping, empowering, and mobilizing the church, the local churches, to stand alongside vulnerable families. Definition of an orphan is um, not just a child who's lost both parents, but a child that's potentially lost just one parent as well. In Zimbabwe, you get many child-headed households where there's several children in a family. The oldest one becomes the head of the household, but is still, in all likelihood, under at the age of 18. Other orphans find themselves living with the extended family who may struggle to cope with an extra member in the family. Zoe trains the local church in mentoring, in supporting, in showing love, guidance, and in giving education to these families. They train church volunteers to identify orphans and vulnerable children in their communities and then shows them how best they can support them. They do this by setting up kids' clubs. Sometimes it's by agricultural training. Sometimes it's goat-reading projects, safeguarding, counselling, advocacy, whatever the children in that community need. The church itself in Zimbabwe, as you can imagine with the statistics we heard, the church itself is poor. The church itself is struggling. But they are kingdom people. And they are swords of God in this country. One of the Zoe staff gave us this quote. They said, it is incredible to see people who are struggling themselves reaching out to those even more vulnerable. It is a true picture of God's kingdom on earth. The world would say, look out for yourself. Keep what little food and water there is for yourself. But these are kingdom people. And this kingdom is an upside down kingdom. Whatever they have, they give away. As part of uh, Tear Funds Connected Church Program, you are linked in with Zoe. And Roderick McKenzie is your connected ambassador, the person who will be able to let you know how the project is going. And I know he will be receiving an update very soon about what the latest developments are. I got a sneak preview of it though, and I heard the good news that even in these hard times, 20 new churches have come to Zoe and said, equip us, empower us, show us how we can help the vulnerable in our community. And I also, at the end of the update, came across a beautiful story that I wanted to share with you today. It's a story of a lady called Gogo Magnoni. And I think we have a photograph of Gogo, if we can just move forward onto it. This is Gogo sitting on the cart there. Gogo Magnoni is 100 years old. She's almost completely blind. She's lived a long life. She had 10 children, six daughters and four sons. And they have all sadly predeceased her. But of those 10 children, they went on to give her 20 grandchildren. But with times being so hard in Zimbabwe, many of her grandchildren had to leave the area where she lived and seek work elsewhere. Some sadly fell victim to the HIV infection and died of AIDS. And one of the most heartbreaking losses for her was the granddaughter she was closest to, who died a few years ago of AIDS and left Gogo her three, grand, her three children to look after. The three children in this picture, Mbiso, Sibungile, and Lufekile. 
These are Gogo's great-grandchildren, and she is now their sole carer. Money is scarce, food is scarce. Getting the children to school is a challenge, and one of the children suffers from HIV. Gogo was struggling until her local church, Brethren Church of Christ, a church that's being supported by Zoe, which in turn is being supported by Tear Fund, which in turn is being supported by P's and G's. Gogo's local church came on board. They stepped into her story. They got her into their goat reading program and she and the family were given a couple of goats to look after and these goats have done what goats do and she now has nine goats in her livestock. She's been given cash transfers for when she, she needs specific purchases. There are church volunteers who now visit Gogo and her family on a daily, weekly basis. They help out around the house, they help with chores, mending the roof, but they also come alongside her three great-grandchildren, mentoring them, teaching them life skills, educating them. And this is what Gogo has to say about the difference this has made to her. I felt a heavy load was lifted off my shoulders, and since then a horizon of light has appeared in my life. I will die a happy woman because I have found Christ and my great-grandchildren are surrounded by caring people. You are part of that story. Your support over the past year has enabled this to happen. You have pierced the darkness of poverty in Zimbabwe and you are enabling Gogo to live as a prisoner of hope. I hope that encourages you. And I look forward to seeing how your partnership develops as the years go on. In one of those little God incidents moments, I found myself in a bookshop this week, a Christian bookshop, so that's why I could justify yet another purchase of yet another book, because, you know, books are good, books are helpful. And I picked up a book, which turned out to be brilliantly relevant for the topic of kingdom and for the fact I was coming to share it here today. I don't actually have it, have it with me. I thought that was too much like product placement. But if you're looking for a good book recommendation, it's called Slow Kingdom Coming by Kent Anan. I know there's a couple of folk in the church who've already read it. I highly recommend this book, Slow Kingdom Coming by Kent Anan. Because as I read the introduction, he seemed to be saying everything that I was feeling this week, which is, we can feel overwhelmed by the needs of the world. Yes, we live as prisoners of hope. We hold on to that reality. We hold on to that promise. But in the meantime, what on earth do we do? How on earth do we start? How do we know that what we're doing is enough? Is giving to Tear Fund enough? Is partnering with Zoe enough? It seems so remote. In his book, Kent recommends five practices to help us really immerse ourselves in kingdom work and stop and take time to think. Are we doing all that we could? He, he calls attention to the practice of, firstly, attention. Pay attention to what's going on in the world. Confession, confessing our shortcomings. Respect the people that we seek to help. Partnering, think about who we partner and that it's with and not for. And truthing holding ourselves accountable, really honestly assessing whether or not the help we are providing does any good. 
It's a challenging read, but it's a really worthwhile read. I think one of the reasons it's challenging for us in the UK is because we have to face up to the fact and the reality that we are partly culpable for a lot of the poverty that we see in our world around us. Poverty is linked to our lifestyles. We have consumerist, consumptive lifestyles at an unprecedented scale in human history. I suppose this is a very good time of year to remind ourselves of that. We just go out onto the streets, into the shops, and it's just more, 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 bye, bye, bye. Our lifestyle is not sustainable. It's having a direct impact on the health of this planet. It's having a huge impact in a changing climate. And at Tear Fund, we've seen this over the years. Time and time again, we've got partner after partner coming to us saying the rains have changed, the climate has changed. Where I once got six bags of maize from this field, I now get one bag of maize. The climate is changing. We are part of this change. And we are living unsustainable lives. We need to be talking about this. As a church, we need to be talking about it. We need to confess our part in it. And we need to act. And I know when we finish the service today, we're going to be having a, a stir-up supper or a stir-up lunch. We're meeting together and there's going to be the opportunity to hear some more from, from Tear Fund's work about that. And stir-up suppers are a new resource that we've created that are designed to start that conversation about what our lifestyles look like. It's, a stir-up supper is designed to look at how to live differently, but also to look at the why behind it. So it's not just about saying, well, do this and do that. It's about understanding the theology. Why have we to live differently? What is God asking of us in this situation? And although we're having one, I think, as a, a corporate body today, stir up supper as a church, the idea is that you'll take this back to your own home and think, right, who are the, who are the six or eight people that I could invite round? Friends, colleagues, neighbours? Invite them round and start this conversation. Because in the end of the day, we live differently because we have hope. Justice will come for those children in Aleppo. It has to. Justice will come for those who live in Mosul. Justice will come for the children in Zimbabwe. Justice will come for the children in our own country. We are promised a time where there will be no more death, no more tears. And we know God keeps his promises. And it's because our king came. Gentle, humble, righteous, having salvation, riding on a donkey. And that enables us to pray with all sincerity when we do, Father, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may your kingdom come quickly, Lord Jesus. May it come quickly. Amen.